Hey everybody, thanks for listening again to the Mount Hope Christian Church Podcast. This is Pastor Brian. I am the pastor of Mount Hope's Belmont campus in Belmont, Massachusetts. It's good to talk to you again today. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we are right in the middle of a story about a man called Nehemiah. Nehemiah went through a big rebuilding process in his life, a big rebuilding project. And you and I know what it's like, don't we, to have some piece of our life that we need to rebuild. The question we've been asking as we walk through this story is how do we rebuild our lives the way that God wants us to? This week, Justin Joseph, who serves on the preaching team here at Mount Hope, delivered the sermon. He did a fantastic job. I know you're going to enjoy it, and I hope you'll listen closely, because I believe that God has something that he would like to say to you. So good to see everyone this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Justin. I serve on the preaching and teaching team here at Mount Hope. And it's so, so good to see you all. Uh, how about, a, first of all, a big round of applause to our worship leader this morning. Who? I'll tell you what. A man of many, many talents. That's, that's pretty impressive. Thank you, Pastor Brian. Thank you to Bill and Bill as well for leading us in worship. I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin. Have you ever had an idea that seemed so brilliant in your mind when the idea was formed, but when you look back, you said, what was I thinking with that idea? Maybe it was something you wore or something you chose to do or maybe a career move or something that you've done in your life where you've said, that was a great idea at the time, but when I look back now, that was a terrible, terrible idea. I've got a lot of those, but I want to give you one specifically this morning. Uh, it was almost 20 years ago. My older brother and I were home from college break at the same time, and so we were both in New Jersey. My brother was in school down in southern Florida. I was uh, up here at school in Boston, and we were both in New Jersey at our parents' house. And it was around that time that my brother needed a car for his commute back and forth from school down in Florida. And so he'd been looking for a car for a while, couldn't find anything. Everything was either overpriced or just wasn't the type of car that he was looking for. And so he'd been searching for quite a while. And while we were both at home, we happened to find a car at the same time. It was a, a 1992 Toyota Camry. It was used. It didn't have too many miles. But here's the key. The owner was not asking for a ton of money, and so we thought, this is a chance. This is the greatest opportunity to go and get this car. And so now we're thinking in our minds. Here's the plan that we're hatching in our heads. We're saying, there's a car in New Jersey. We need to get it to Florida, and we've got about two days before the school break is over, and we've got to get back to classes. And so I hatched this brilliant scheme that we would drive it down to Florida together, the 1,275 miles down there together, and then I would fly back up to Boston to get back to class on time. Now, my brother obviously brought up one interesting point, that the car is technically not registered. There is technically no insurance at this point. But I said to him, no, no, no. It's just 1,275 miles. What could possibly go wrong? We'll get the insurance when we get down to Florida. We'll register the car. Everything will be fine when we get down there. And so the two of us hatched this brilliant plan, and we started driving. We thought, look, in 24 hours, the plan will be complete. There's nothing to worry about. And so we drove. We set out driving. We never went over the speed limit in a single state. We obeyed every traffic rule that we could get through. For 1,271 miles, there were no problems whatsoever. The only problem was that we needed to go 1,275 miles. We were stopped at a traffic light in southern Florida, right around Fort Lauderdale. 
sitting at a traffic light, and we're thinking, wow, we're almost there. We've done it. We've made it. And the heavens open up, and the rain just starts to come down. It just starts to pour on top of us to the point where you could barely see what's in front of you and really rarely, barely ever see what's behind you. But again, we're thinking, four miles, we're almost there. And it's at this moment where we're sitting at a traffic light, obeying the rules of the road. I'm sitting there, and I look in the rearview mirror for just a fraction of a second, and I can see this truck that is not able to slow down, just coming faster and faster. And that one second felt like an eternity, and it just slams into the back of us. Now, thank God we weren't hurt. We, were, we, I mean, we had some bumps and bruises and some, some whiplash and things like that. But overall, we weren't hurt. But the truck plows into us. And we made it the final four miles, thanks to a tow truck, but we made it the final four miles. And the entire time we're sitting there going, why didn't we get the insurance? Why didn't we get insured before this trip happened? And at the time, the idea seemed brilliant. It seemed like this can't-lose idea that we'll drive the car through eight or nine states and we'll make it safely and there will be no problem. But then in reality, we realized how much more we ended up paying in the long term as a result of that short-term gain that we were trying to get. And this morning, this is the idea of what we're going to learn about with the people of Israel in the book of Nehemiah that we've been in for the last couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about people who sabotage themselves, much like I did with this harebrained scheme. People who sabotage themselves, sometimes knowingly, but sometimes unknowingly, sabotaging the rebuilding process without sometimes even realizing that they're doing it. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been in this, uh, this very interesting Old Testament book of Nehemiah, this book where we're watching the people of God do something physically, where they're rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem, but they're also doing something so spiritually important at the same time. They're rebuilding their relationship with God step by step along the way, and it's during this time that this man, Nehemiah, is coming in and, and leading the rebuilding process. We, we learned in, weeks one, in week one when Pastor Brian was talking about how important that rebuilding was going to be and the vision that was being cast. And we learned that in order to rebuild, that we'd have to remember God's larger story is what we learned in chapters one, two, and three. And then we went into chapter 4 this past Sunday, and we learned that in order to rebuild, all we needed to do was trust God and to do our job was the other thing that we needed to do. So at this point, we've watched them start the mission, go off and build this, start building this amazing wall. And then at the same time, we saw when external opposition would come against them and how we would respond in the face of external opposition. And then today we're going to start to look in Nehemiah chapter 5 where things suddenly take a little bit of a turn where it isn't external opposition that you have to worry about, but it's internal opposition. The sabotaging of the work that we sometimes don't even realize is happening. And before we go and read Nehemiah chapter 5, I encourage all of you sitting here this morning, if there's something that you're rebuilding in your lives right now, I want you to keep that in the front of your mind, whether that is your marriage, whether that is your family, whether that is your career, your life, your walk with God, whatever it is that you're rebuilding today, let's keep that foremost in our mind so that as we unpack the rest of this chapter, we can see what God is telling us about that specific area of our lives. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 5 together. This morning, we're going to learn that in order to rebuild, we have to do something else. We have to Understand it's not just how you build that's important. 
it's not just what you build that's important, it's also how you build. And let's read that section together. We're reading in Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, I'll read from verses 1 through the end of the chapter. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we were mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have to ha we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless, because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out their house, shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. Here's a key section. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds, in spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Now, it might be a little bit of a confusing passage of Scripture because there's a couple of things taking place here. Uh, let me just set a little bit of historical background to what's taking place, and then we'll go into what God is saying through this passage. The early part of this scripture is really the outcry of the Jewish people, not against the external opposition that was coming against them, 
but against the internal opposition within their own community. You see, what had happened was because these people had set out on this brave mission to rebuild the walls and to gird themselves with swords and, and, and plows at the same time to work together to build the walls, they also were not being able to take care of their fields. They were not able to grow crops. And as a result of that, they were in poverty. They were impoverished in so many ways. And the people were struggling. There was no food to eat, and as a result, they were mortgaging their fields to pay the taxes to the king, and also, in order to just get enough food to survive, they were mortgaging their fields, and then some of them had to go as far as to sell their own children into slavery just so that the children could stay alive and that they could stay alive. It was a desperate, desperate situation. It was a helpless feeling, no sign of relief. It is a tough, tough place that they're in. And then in this moment, they come out to Nehemiah and they say, what can we do when we're, we're completely impoverished? We have no food. We're borrowing against everything we're borrowing. And in the end of it, we're, we're now forced to pay interest on top of everything we're borrowing from our own brothers and sisters. And it's this terrible, desperate situation in the midst of the mission where they're broken and, they're, and, and they're, they're desperate, they're hungry, and they're impoverished. And in the midst of that, some people are taking advantage of the broken, desperate, poor people within their community by charging them interest as they lend to them and give them to survive each day. And it's in the middle of that section that Nehemiah has a response to the people commanding them to do what is right. And verse 9 is where we'll spend most of our time today. He writes like this, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And then the final section that we read from verse 14 to 19 was Nehemiah sharing an example from his own life where he had every right as the governor of that land to take an allotment, meaning he was allowed to take certain food, he was allowed to take the choice wine, and he was allowed to take these things because it was owed to him as part of his compensation for being governor. But Nehemiah says, even though I was allowed to, I didn't out of reverence for God. And so this is the backdrop to what we will study and what we will talk about today. You see, Nehemiah understood something that many of us sometimes struggle with. I know I do. That it's not just what we build on this earth or what we build that matters. It's also how we build it that also matters. It matters how we live every day as we rebuild those things that we're keeping in the front of our mind. It matters how we carry ourselves every day in order to rebuild. Here's Nehemiah saying to the people, look, we're talking about setting up our nation for the ages. And you're talking about making some quick money right now. We've lost sight of the long-term mission in order to satisfy the short-term gain. It kind of sounds like some dumb kid who said, let's not buy the insurance while we make this drive right now. Let's sacrifice the long-term plan here in order to satisfy the short-term gain. It's that planning mindset that Nehemiah steps into and he says, wait a second. We're trying to do something for the ages. We're trying to set up God's kingdom for all time. And you're sitting here squabbling over a few dollars that you can take by oppressing your fellow brother and your sister. There's something about the way we live, how we live that God intimately cares about and desires to know more about. How we live is just as important as what we end up building. There are days when my wife and I will sit around and we'll watch uh, HGTV. How many of you guys watch HGTV? It's not fascinating television, if you ask me, but it's, 
It's interesting when you watch folks rebuilding homes or get property brothers or fixer-upper where they're coming in and they're building a house. And in almost every one of these episodes, they need to knock down a wall at some point. And every time they knock down a wall, they open up the wall and they find all the things that are wrong with the house as soon as you open it. Now, most of these homes, some of them in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, or 70s, they might have uh, code violations inside the wall, or they may have wiring that's faulty, or a contractor used cheaper materials to get by. And it's at that moment that the homeowner suddenly has that broken, desperate look in their eyes, and they say, oh no, I thought I was buying this beautiful house, but all along there was something inside the walls that I did not know about, because in that homeowner's mind, the what is important, the house is important, but how it was built is also very, very important to that homeowner. And in the same way, God deeply cares about how we live while we rebuild and how we carry on our lives as we are rebuilding. Nehemiah says that, look, maybe charging interest may be acceptable. There were rules in the Old Testament against charging interest to your own brother or sister. But Nehemiah says, look, maybe you thought it was okay for right now. Maybe it was legally okay and acceptable. But is it morally right that you are doing this? This morning, I want to remind you that there are three real things that are happening in this passage, three situations that are sabotaging the mission, sabotaging the rebuilding, and none of them come from outside. They're all internal. They were all things happening right in the hearts of the people within their own community. And I know many of you are going to have the same temptation I did to read this chapter and to put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes to say, look, I would call out oppression as soon as I saw it. I would call out someone taking advantage of someone else. But I want to encourage you to take the place of the wealthy nobles who are charging the interest to their brothers and sisters because I think you'll find that's where we really are in this passage of Scripture, that we're not really Nehemiah calling out the oppression. Most of the time, we're, we're actually the wealthy nobles charging the interest to their brothers and sisters. So three things that happen when we sabotage the rebuilding, and I'll tell you them quickly, and then we'll look at each one in depth a little bit more. We sabotage the rebuilding when we lose three things. Number one, when we lose the fear of God. When we lose the fear of God, we sabotage our rebuilding. Number two, we sabotage the rebuilding when we lose compassion for others when we become selfish. And number three, we, lose, we sabotage the rebuilding when we lose interest in God's reputation. I want to read that verse one more time. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God, to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. You see, what was happening to the people of Israel is that over time, their motivation started to change. They weren't so motivated by God and his mission and his work. They started to be motivated by money and title and power and authority. They started to switch, and this is where Nehemiah is teaching us that motivation matters. Your motivation matters. If you look at someone like Abraham Lincoln, and I'll go through a couple of historical figures today, but someone like Abraham Lincoln who the motivation mattered for what he was doing. Was he trying to unify the nation? Was he trying to end the practice of slavery simply because it was good? 
or simply because the culture said it was right. No, in fact, many in the culture internally opposed his decision to do that. But Lincoln was motivated by something far bigger than the people around him. He was motivated by something so much grander, and in fact, this quote kind of shows you what he was motivated by. He says, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Lincoln was motivated by a fear of God because he feared God, he trusted God, he loved God because of that. He knew it was the right thing to go and free the slaves and to make sure slavery ended in the United States. You see, there can be so many motivations for what we do. Maybe it feels right, or maybe it makes my mood better when I do what's right, or maybe it's because the culture around me tells me something is right. But Nehemiah reminds us that all of those things can fade. All of those things can change with time. But with the fear of God, if your motivation is God himself, that never changes. That's constant. It's secure. It's in place. And that's why we place that first in our lives. The fear of God is what motivates Nehemiah. And I want us to be clear. When I say the fear of God, and we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, we're not necessarily just talking about a fear as in being so afraid that we do something right out of fear of punishment. That might be a part of it. But what we're really talking about here is this awe and reverence and love for God that I will do what is right because I revere God and I fear him. I love him so much. And this is where Nehemiah is saying, look, you may be able to get away with charging interest, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Think about what God's mission is. Be motivated by him. Nehemiah is saying, look, I'm not motivated by rules or laws. I'm motivated by this deep attraction and love and reverence for God. I'm motivated by that. If you know my dad, if you know my father, he's, uh, he is the world's most careful driver. The world's most careful driver. Interesting that it was his son that decided to drive to Florida that, that day. But it was, it, my, my dad is the most careful driver. And when I was about 15 or 16 years old and he was teaching me how to drive, you, would, you, you better believe it was some of the most tense moments of my life knowing that he's in the front seat. If the, if the speed limit is 55, he's always going 54. He's never passing that speed limit. He's never breaking a traffic rule. And so he's sitting in the front passenger seat while I'm driving. And you can imagine how nervous I am sitting next to him when he drives like that. And over and over again, any time I exceeded the speed limit by one mile or any time I didn't slow down at a yellow light, he was definitely going to let me know that those things were not right. Now, while I was learning to drive... I'm learning next to my father who I have a, I mean, I certainly have a fear that he could smack me at any time. That existed. But I was also motivated by my reverence for my father. I was motivated by this awe that he never gets traffic tickets. He never gets pulled. He never gets any sort of issues with driving because of how he drives. And so there's this awe of him. There's a reverence of him. And yes, there's a fear of him at the same time while I'm learning to drive. Now, the problem was that as soon as he got out of the front seat, I didn't really follow all of those rules. I would definitely like to exceed the speed limit. I definitely would flaunt some of the rules a little bit. But it was ultimately whenever he was there, I acted like he was there. And Nehemiah is telling the people of Israel, look, you need to be motivated by something so much bigger 
than getting caught or so much bigger than some rules that are out there. You need to be motivated by a fear of God, by a reverence for God. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read like this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Fear the Lord your God and serve him Hold fast to him. It means having such a reverence for God, such a reverence that we're so concerned about his desires, his will, his plan. That's what motivates what we do every day. And Nehemiah reminds the people, be motivated by this reverence for God. Let that lead what you do first. Because when you're motivated by God versus other things, there's a trust involved there. That's where you're saying, look, I won't charge interest. Maybe I won't make a quick buck here, but I will trust God in my finances. Maybe that's where you're saying, look, if I fear God, if I revere God, I can trust God in my marriage because I trust that he will take care of everything. There's an obedience attached with the fear of God. There's an obedience saying that, look, I trust God that you've got everything in control. Even if I can't make sense of everything right now, God, I trust that you can make sense of it. And so I trust you. I obey you. I yield to what it is that you want to do in this particular area of my life that I'm trying to rebuild. The fear of God is a motivator. It's not something that we should be afraid of. It's a motivator. It's a thing that says, look, I know that I'm in the hands of a God who loves me and who cares for me, and everything will be just fine because I trust him in the situation. And this is what Nehemiah is calling the people to do. So number one, our motivation matters. But number two, every interaction is an opportunity. Every interaction is an opportunity. If you look at what Nehemiah is doing in this book, if you look at the verse that we read before, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Nehemiah is making it clear that number one, we fear God. We revere God. We're in awe of God. But number two, we live a certain way because there are other people watching the way we live. And for many people, this is the greatest witness and testimony if, if God is real, if God exists, if God is who he says he is. It's your life that ultimately witnesses to that. And so Nehemiah is saying every interaction you have counts. Every interaction matters. There's a couple of faces that I want you to take a look at up here. <clears throat> on, the, on the next slide there. Oh, thanks, Eileen. If you take a look at these faces, they all have something in common. In fact, you can look at my face too because I have the same thing in common with them. Does anyone take a guess what that is? They all have something in common with me. Obviously, they're not all Super Bowl champions. What, what is it about them that they have in common? Their seriousness? No. They're men, okay. That We do have that in common. Here's what they all have in common and I share in common with them. We all have two first names. Ah, oh, that's right. You guys are seeing it now. Uh, Woody Allen, Jason Alexander, LeBron James, Elton John, Billy Joel, Justin Joseph. We all have two first names. Our last name could also be a first name. Now, if you are in a situation where your last name could also be a first name, there's something that constantly happens to you in life. 
people call you by your last name all the time. They assume that is probably your first name, and they call you by your last name constantly. Now, this usually isn't a problem. It's a little bit of a nuisance, but it's not usually a problem. But there was once a time where this became a problem in my life. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. I was working at a certain place at a certain company. And during that time, there was a, a person at the same company who just simply did not know that my first name was Justin. And so email after email, he would begin those emails with, hi, Joseph. Nice to see you today, or, or, or thank you for responding to my last email. And every email. One after another was, hi, Joseph, dear Joseph, hello, Joseph. And it was always my last name instead of my first name. And here's the thing that makes this story even more peculiar. Every time he did it, I would get annoyed. But I would never tell him what was the correct answer. I would never correct him on what he was doing. And so he would write, hello, Joseph, and I would respond, and with as big letters as I could, I would write, sincerely, Justin, at the bottom, and every next email would come back, dear Joseph. And it got annoying, but I just felt like at this point, I can't really say anything because we've had about 20 interactions at this point. I can't sudden, suddenly tell him that my name is not what you think it is. And so I let this continue. Interaction after interaction, I let this continue. And it all came to a head one day when we both happened to be in the same building at the same time, walking in the same hallway at the same time. And as I'm walking down the hallway, he's walking up the other way. And I look to him and I say, hey, Bill, how's it going? And he comes back with, hey, Joey, doing well. Let's think about this for a second. He not only called me by my last name, he gave my last name a nickname when he called me at this point. And so, and again, I stopped, I thought, and I just kept on walking because I just couldn't say anything at that point. But this is what happens. Every interaction was an opportunity for me. Every chance I met with him was an opportunity for me to correct the record with this guy, to show him, hey, man, listen, my name is Justin. Stop calling me Joseph. It was an opportunity. But I never took advantage of the opportunity. I wasted the opportunities. And here's the thing that, that Nehemiah is teaching the people, that every interaction we have with one another, every interaction we have with people around us, it's an opportunity to show the world that our God is pretty awesome. Our God is great. And here's an opportunity to show the world how great this God really is. I love watching my kids play with, with magnets because it still blows them away when the two opposite ends attract so perfectly, but the two like ends will completely repel each other. And to them, it makes no sense. How can one thing attract so well and at the same time repel so well? It's this perfect illustration of us sometimes here on this earth. In our lives, we can attract people to God by the way we live, but we can also repel people pretty easily by the way we live. And Nehemiah is saying, if you walk in the fear of God, your life will represent God so well that it will attract people to God really, really well. And that's why he tells them, you should be motivated by so much more than making a quick dollar right now. You should be motivated by doing what is right for God. We have an opportunity to draw people to God by the way we live by the way we live, we can draw them closer because ultimately our lives should be a reflection of this God. Just like an athlete is a reflection of his or her coach or an employee is a reflection of their boss or a child is a reflection of their parent. In the same way, God is saying that you here on this earth are a reflection of God. 
that you have an opportunity to reflect the love of God, to show people how great this God is through your efforts every single day. I loved reading in a recent survey that, uh, that, that was done of converts from Islam into Christianity. So Muslims who became Christians were asked the question, what was the number one driving force to draw you from Islam into Christianity? And it was, almost, it was not even close. They all, the vast majority of those converts said, look, it was the life of a Christian friend of mine that drew me to God, that they lived in such a way that made me say, look, what does he have or what does she have that makes them act the way they do and think the way they do? I want some of that too. And so there was this constant drawing to God as a result of this love and this reverence of God and watching other people's lives. But that survey also said something else too. What was the number one reason you weren't becoming a Christian before? they found out it was the lives of other Christians that kept them from becoming a Christian. That they would watch other people and see how selfishly they lived and how not Christ-like they lived. And they would think in their minds, look, if they live like that, how real can their God really be? And it drew them away from God. It's a reminder to us that every day our lives are an opportunity to attract people to the God that saved us and loved us as much as he did uh, just this past Saturday, I was uh, speaking at a conference of Asian American Christians uh, students. Uh, so it was uh, about 25 different colleges all over the New England area came in, and they were all uh, gathered together to, uh, to attend this conference. And so after my session was done, I was speaking to a bunch of students, and one young student stayed around after the session to talk more. And I asked her her story, and it was so fascinating. She had recently come from China. She'd been here for about a year in the United States. And I asked her to tell me a little bit more about her background. And she had so many questions about faith and about God. And it, it, it really impressed me that she had such deep questions. And so in my mind, I thought that she was a Christian. Turned out she had never even met a Christian until she came to the United States. She'd never even known about Christianity until she came to the United States. Her roommates freshman year, two of them were Christians. Her roommates sophomore year, three of them were Christians. And she just told me over and over again, I watched the way they lived. They never said anything to me about Jesus for, for, for the most part, but I just watched the way they lived. Every day they lived with such integrity. Every day they lived with such good lives that I thought to myself, there's something unique about them. There's something special about them. So I started to ask questions. Now think about it. This young woman had given up a Saturday to attend a Christian conference about 40 miles away from where she lives because she had questions in her mind that were the result of watching other Christians just living their lives. It's an invitation to all of us that our lives should be lived in such a way where we are so focused on the things of God, we fear God, we're motivated by this awe and reverence of God that we live a certain way that draws people closer and closer to God. It's something that we have to make a part of our lives. Sometimes we sabotage our own rebuilding because, number one, we lose the motivation. We, we stop fearing God but number two, we stop caring for other people. And because we stop caring for other people, because we stop having compassion for people who are sometimes different from us or people who don't look like us or sometimes people who don't think the same way we do, because of those reasons, we start to assume, I don't have any sort of need to relate to this person. 
Nehemiah teaches us that every interaction is an opportunity. Every interaction is a chance to draw someone closer and closer to God. Our lives matter. The way that we live every day matters. It's not enough to just compare ourselves to everyone else. There's a, there's a famous uh, letter that circulates the internet sometimes where it's a letter from a student to their, her parents back home. She's a student at college and she's writing to her parents back home. You may have heard this before. Let me read it to you because I think it helps explain sometimes how we behave ourselves. The letter goes like this. Dear mom and dad, just thought I'd drop you a quick note to update you on life at college. The past semester went a little differently than I first imagined. After getting a C- in biology and failing math, I made some great friends. One of them is a local artist named Will. I've fallen madly in love with Will. He quit high school after the 10th grade to see the world. He only had enough money to make it to the next town over, but luckily that was the town I was in. We've been dating for three weeks and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment with him and his four roommates. They're in a band together. I kind of had to do that when I got arrested the second time and got kicked out of the dorms. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week when I found out that I'm pregnant. But don't worry, I plan to finish college sometime in the future. Or maybe not. I hear that the local blood bank is paying top dollar to blood donors. That should keep Will, me, and the baby on our feet for a while. At this point, the parents have their jaws to the ground. They cannot believe what they're reading. They're petrified about this letter. They flip it over to continue reading the letter. Mom and Dad, I'm kidding. I'm still in school. I'm living in my dorm. I never got arrested, never met a guy named Will. I'm not pregnant. I'm not giving blood for money. But Mom and Dad, I did get a C- minus in biology. And I did fail math. I guess if you look at it in perspective, it's not so bad, right? See you during break. Love, your daughter, Jamie. Sometimes this is what we do. We put our actions in perspective. We say, look, I'm not as bad as someone else. I'm not doing anything as terrible as these evil people I see on the news or these criminals I see in some prison. I'm not as bad as them. But Nehemiah says that when you follow God, when you are a follower of Christ, how you live matters. How you live matters every day. And it's not just to compare yourself to others and say, look, they're doing it so I can do it too. It's to say, look, I am going to live a certain way so that my life will attract people to God, will draw people to Jesus Christ, will make people stop and say, there's something unique about him. There's something unique about her. I want to know what makes him or her so unique. And sometimes that's going to require us to take some short-term losses so that there is a long-term gain. That's going to require some of us to buy the insurance before we go on the trip. It's going to require some short-term losses, maybe the loss of accolades, the loss of maybe some friendships, the loss of pride, the loss of a little bit of money up front. It'll take some losses sometimes, but as long as we keep the long-term vision, the long-term mission in mind, God knows that he can be glorified in those missions, in those situations. So I ask you this morning, are there areas in your life where you can take a short-term loss? Areas where you can maybe sacrifice a little today so that someone else can see the peace and know the love that comes from God in the long term? Can we sacrifice some things today, maybe for those things that you are rebuilding right now? And some of us are sitting here right now with those things in our mind. But I want to rebuild my marriage, and all along I've known it's the other person's fault. 
But today, can we sacrifice a little bit of that pride this morning to say, maybe, look, maybe I am owed an apology. Maybe I am owed, uh, maybe I'm allowed to be angry at this moment. Maybe I'm allowed to harbor this hatred in my heart right now. But maybe I will take the short-term loss for the long-term gain. Maybe I will take the pain right now so that someone can come closer to God and I can accomplish God's rebuilding mission in my life today. And that's why how we live is just as important as what we're rebuilding all along. Each of us have an opportunity every day to live this out every day, to be motivated by the fear of God and to make every interaction matter. If you look at the gentlemen we've been looking at today on the screen, there's a couple of them. There's Abraham Lincoln. There's Martin Luther King Jr. There's also a gentleman, uh, it's on the next slide there, there's Martin Luther King Jr., and then there's William Wilberforce, who's this gentleman, if you're not familiar with Wilberforce's life. He was responsible for ending the slave trade uh, throughout Great Britain and throughout much of the world because of the work he did. All three men, Lincoln, King, and Wilberforce, did amazing things on this earth. But my favorite part about these three gentlemen is they were motivated by God. They were not motivated by what seemed right at the time. All three of them were devout Christians. All three, in fact, Martin Luther King was a pastor, and we sometimes forget that. That they were motivated heavily by God's will and God's mission and God's plan in this world. And they were so motivated by that that they were willing to go and do what was the considered unthinkable in order to accomplish what God ultimately wanted accomplished. But this is the story of the world around us. I want to share with you some quick things here, and then we'll wrap up. Take a look at how the world changed when Jesus' message hit this world. It's not like Jesus' message came and suddenly uh, people just thought, all right, this is a good thing, I'll keep it in my heart. But these people took it to the uttermost parts of the world and changed the world. They changed the way people lived. Think about the hospitals that are started all around the world, the schools that were started, the YMCA, poverty relief. We often forget the role of God-fearing, motivated people who made those changes happen. Think about things like human rights. Think about what human rights looked like before Jesus Christ and after Jesus Christ. Think about compassion and mercy. Think about hospitals and orphanages before Jesus Christ and after him. Think about the marriage and think about elevating the family into a place of importance all because of Jesus Christ and his message. Think about education. Do you know 122 of the first 123 universities in America were started as Christian schools? There's this thing about them, even Harvard, which probably is nothing like a Christian school today. This is their founding statement. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is this, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's what Harvard was founded on. Now, education blossomed because of the message of Jesus Christ. This idea of democracy and government of the people is a real direct connection to God saying that every person has intrinsic value. Science develops because of God and the idea that reason exists. And if there's a reasonable creator, then we can have scientific laws and natural laws. That blossoms as a result of God. Art and music and literature, all of these things blossom because of God and being motivated by him. I want to read a quick quote. In fact, it's from uh, 
famed atheist Bertrand Russell. In fact, it was also agreed by another famed atheist, Richard Rorty, who have both argued that without the legacy of Jesus Christ, it is unlikely that we would have the concepts of human dignity, liberty, truth, conscience, personhood, intrinsic value, the way we have them today. Those are people who don't believe God even exists, but will say that because of the life of Jesus Christ, we have these things in our society today. But why was that the case? Because people realize that it's not just what we build. It's not just getting to heaven. It's not just building a great church. It's about how we live on the way towards that rebuilding. How we live matters every single day. And this is why in the book of Matthew we read, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's so many other verses. We just don't have time to go through them. But how we live matters. How we live matters. In 1 Timothy, Paul teaches Timothy, set an example for the believers in your speech, your conduct, your love, and your faithfulness. As a prisoner of the gospel, I urge you then, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This morning, my question to all of us, whatever it is that you're rebuilding this morning, I ask you, are there areas in your life where you are sabotaging the rebuilding? where you are not motivated by God anymore, where you're motivated by your own needs and your own desires, your own pocket, you're motivated by those things. I also ask you, are you taking advantage of every opportunity? Are you interacting with people with this understanding that, look, this may be the only gospel this person ever hears, and it's my life, and I have to live it in such a way that draws people to Christ. And I also ask you, are you living with God's reputation in mind? Are you living with God's reputation in mind? That the way I live matters in this earth because of how it reflects back to my God. The end result of all of this, my friends, is not just a rebuilt marriage or a rebuilt church or a rebuilt relationship with your loved ones. The end result is those things plus a life that draws other people to God. And that's what we're called to do this morning. There's a famous quote from John Piper, a pastor, who, who, who says it like this. Does Christ get a good reputation because of the way we live? Is the excellence of Christ displayed in our lives? That should matter to us, not whether we ourselves are praised. This morning, this is the question I leave to each of you. Whatever you are rebuilding this morning, whatever you are rebuilding, what is motivating you? And are you taking advantage of the opportunities that come your way? And is God's glory foremost in your life. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up this morning as we close out our service. I invite each of you, if you will, to bow your heads and close your eyes as we close out in prayer this morning. <clears throat> the what we build is so important. The what we build day by day, whether it is our families, our marriages, our churches, or our relationships, that's important. But how we build as we get there is just as important, and it's not something we can ignore any longer. If there are areas of your life this morning where you're sitting there and questioning and saying, look, this area of my life, I could be doing more to be motivated by the fear of God, to make, take sure, make sure I'm taking advantage of every opportunity, and to make sure that I'm motivated by the glory of God. There are areas of my life where I can do that. If that's you this morning, let's pray together on those areas. As you're rebuilding, there are areas of your life where you may have to take a short-term loss in order for long-term gain in God's kingdom. And whatever those areas are, let's pray over those as well this morning.
Let's pray together. And after that, we'll take some time and worship. And we'll close out our service this morning. Lord, we come before you today with grateful hearts and humble hearts. And thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us, Lord God. We thank you for the life that you live, Jesus Christ. Where you had no, no reason whatsoever, oh God. No reason to have to come down here and to save us where you gave up what was rightfully yours. You made all of those losses. You took on all of those pains so that we could have this long-term gain. Thank you for the example you've set for us, Lord God, and thank you for what you've done. God, I pray for every one of my friends here tonight, today, that, Lord, you would work in their lives in all the areas where they feel that they are, they're trying to rebuild, where they're trying to get things back to the way you want them to be, but they're struggling along the way, maybe sometimes not even realizing that we sabotage ourselves along the way. God, help us to focus first on the fear and the reverence and the awe of you to worship you as you deserve. And secondly, help us to focus then, Lord God, on taking advantage of every opportunity to make sure that we are blessing others and showing compassion to others. God, help our minds to be fixed and focused on your glory and your reputation and what is rightfully yours, Lord God. And we thank you, we thank you, we thank you because all that we have is because of you and we give you praise for that. Let our lives be lived in such a way that it brings so much glory to you, Lord God, that it directs people to you, that it attracts people to you and the message of love that you preach. We thank you for your presence again, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.